today, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we begin today a new study. We'll begin walking through the book of Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians, turn with me there. You know, it may be old-timey for us. Uh, this is probably going to date me, but, you know, I remember the days when you used to send letters to other people, uh, and you would receive letters back. Uh, it's long been, letter writing was has long been an important means of communication. And perhaps, I would suggest, that we have lost something in our day by the loss of letter, letter writing. Perhaps we have lost something uh, by having this means of slow communication. Or you may say that that's just the wistful desires of a romantic, right? That there's something to letter writing. Uh, in the days of the early church, though, letter writing was vital. Uh, it was often the only means of communication besides being there in person. And we know that couldn't always be the case. Uh, as we go through and we, we look at the New Testament and uh, we look at Paul's letters, there's often times where he expresses, for instance, we saw this in 1 Thessalonians, when he says, I, I want to be there. My heart's desire is to be there with you and to instruct you and encourage you and admonish you, but I can't. Uh, I, I, the, the Spirit won't allow it at this time. And so I'm doing the next best thing I can. I'm sending a letter and I'm sending uh, my faithful brother in Christ, Timothy, to you. And, right, we have to understand, right, it's vital. There weren't podcasts, right? They couldn't just pull up the Internet and say, oh, what, is, what does Paul say on this topic? Uh, no, they had to have letters. Uh, and we know that's the majority of the New Testament, right? A, a, a large portion of the New Testament is letters, letters to individuals, letters to particular churches, or just generally to churches. Their purpose is varied. Uh, sometimes the letters are, are written to combat heresy. Uh, we think, for instance, of the letter to the Galatians, right? W right in the outset of it, Paul's like, I'm writing to you because some of you think there's another gospel. But you're foolish if you think there's another gospel. And I tell you, even if an angel from heaven came and preached you another gospel, let that one be accursed. And even if I did it, even if I came to you and I said, suddenly gave you another, uh, gave you another gospel, let me be accursed. All right. So some of them are to correct problems and heresies. We think of the letter to the Corinthian church, right? There were, there were problems in that church that had to be addressed. And so Paul wrote to them. So their purpose is varied. And sometimes they're just written to encourage, right? Sometimes they're just written to exhort and encourage uh, the believers in the faith. Well, as we pick up this letter, uh, as we go throughout it, as we look at the words and the phrases and the sentences, I want us to see not just today, but as we go through uh, the book of Ephesians, this. The letter of Ephesians is written about the love of God from ages past and including what that now means for us in Christ Jesus. The letter of Ephesians is written about the love of God from ages past, including what that now means for us in Christ Jesus. So to begin, I just want to read for us verses 1 and 2. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the context to the letter, uh, and then uh, at the end, I want us to actually, I'm going to read through the entirety of the letter, so we receive it as the early church did. They, they wouldn't have split it up into two or three lines. They would have read the entirety of it. Uh, and thought through it. But uh, let us begin just in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> the word of the Lord says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, I want us to consider a little bit of the context and then look at the whole letter and then come back and... and um, Think about some of what that means for us at the outset of our study. The first question we might ask is who wrote, not the book of love, but the book of Ephesians? So who wrote Ephesians? And the letter begins with this introduction of where it came from, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus 
by the will of God. And now here I must note that there is great contention about the first word there in our book, in our letter, Paul. Uh, the great vast majority of New Testament scholars today do not think that Paul actually wrote this letter. Uh, there are a variety of alternatives given. The one most likely, according to their estimation or the sum of what they say, is that it was probably a disciple of Paul in Paul's name. Uh, the, so it was written sometime after his death, perhaps, uh, to encourage the church further in Pauline theology. In their reasoning, and I'll give you some of the reasoning just briefly, uh, the first is that the point of view of the author seems, author seems more like someone looking back at Paul's uh, ministry than it is Paul himself in the midst of it. Uh, for instance, if you go to chapter 3, you kind of get that sense. Um, and so I'll give you some of that sense here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'll just say dot, dot, dot. Uh, so it kind of seems perhaps that this is a reflection on Paul's ministry, not Paul writing about his ministry. That's their argument. Uh, the second thing is uh, some of the theological topics that and themes that we see in the book of Ephesians don't quite match what we see in the undisputed letters of Paul. And I'll explain what that is in just a moment here. Uh, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, it seems like that the Jew and Gentile relationship to one another has already been resolved. And yet in one of the later letters of Paul to the book of Romans, right? In Romans, there's this great wrestling between uh, th this topic of Jew and Gentile, right? Paul wrestles back and forth. That's what the whole like latter half of the, the book really is of Romans is right this this wrestling between what it means to be Jew and Gentile. And so scholars say that Ephesians kind of seems like that's a settled issue. And so Paul's probably not writing it. Uh, by the way, so, so there are undisputed letters. That is, these scholars have determined that these are most likely written by Paul and that there are some disputed letters. And Ephesians is a disputed letter. Uh, just for your understanding, the undisputed letters would be 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, and Romans. Does that matter? I'll leave that for you to decide, right? Um, the, the third kind of reason, uh, and this is a, a major reason for a lot of scholars, is that the word usage seems out of step with the undisputed letters of Paul. Uh, so just kind of briefly, without getting too caught in the bogs and mire of it, is that there's a lot of unique words to this letter that we don't find in other letters of Paul, uh, and they would argue an unusual amount of that. So compared to his other letters, there's an unusual amount of unique words. Uh, there are phrases and certain prepositions even that are used more in Ephesians than in any of other's letters, so kind of indicating to, in their mind that this is someone different wrote this than Paul himself. Uh, the, the fourth reason we might say, and this is, a, again, this is a big one for a lot of people, is that the relationship between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians uh, is something might, that might tip the scales into this being not a letter of Paul directly. Uh, there are some words and phrases that are, seem to be copied out of the book of Colossians. Uh, the ending of this letter matches exactly with the book of Colossians. And so the thought is that somebody must have had, a disciple of Paul must have had the letter to the Colossians there, or at least knew it well enough in his mind that he started writing and, and kind of adapting uh, the letter of Col to the Colossians for uh, the Ephesians. It's not to say that Ephesians is a copy. There is enough distinction uh, between the two. Uh, but the thought is that Ephesians is dependent on Colossians. And then kind of the last thing, and this is, again, another kind of compelling reason for some scholars, and I'll, t and I'll tell you why all this matters here in a moment. I know this is like a lot of information. This is an information dump. Uh, you should look at some of the commentaries. There's like 50 pages 
on just the introduction about what uh, Ephesians, who wrote Ephesians. So it's worse. You could really be bored to tears uh, elsewhere. Um, but the, the fifth is that the letter to the Ephesians is very general in nature. It's a very general letter. As, as we read through it, we'll find that it's, it doesn't seem to deal with any specific issues and it doesn't address any specific people. And that seems strange when we consider that Paul spent years in Ephesus. He spent years among the Ephesians. Uh, indeed, if you look at the book of Acts, when Paul is um, on his way to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be uh, put in jail, put in prison, maybe killed, uh, he meets with the Ephesian elders and they have a cry on the beach, right? So there's a lot of emotion and personal relationship invested with the Ephesian church. And so the question is, if this was really Paul, and for instance, we could go back to chapter 3, why is Paul saying, if, you, if you've heard about me, right? Wouldn't it be understood? Of course they've heard about you, Paul. So there's this question. Um. So this debate, the debate about who wrote Ephesians, really began in earnest in the late 1700s, the early 1800s. It derives from a method known as textual criticism, which is sometimes a good thing and is sometimes a bad thing. But briefly, just what textual criticism is, is it's an attempt to look at the text critically, not to find errors in the sense of doctrinal errors, but to find, well, with all the copies that we have, what is probably most likely the original? What are we most able to ascertain about this, this letter by looking kind of forensically at the text? Uh, so that's what kind of textual criticism is. And I would really encourage you, if you want to know more about that, look that up, because that's probably a very bad definition. And there's probably some scholars who would be very upset that I described it that way. But there, there's this issue raised about the authorship of this letter, to which we must ask, did Paul write it, and does it matter if he did not? To answer the last question first, yes, I believe that it does matter who wrote this letter. We don't see in it heresy, right? So we don't see in it heresy. We don't see anything that directly contradicts what we have received. It's not another gospel like I had mentioned about the book of Galatians, right? In this, where Paul writes, if someone comes and preaches to you another gospel, it's not that. Um, but does it matter? Uh, I think, yes, it does matter. It, it purports in plain English to state this has been written by Paul. Paul uses personal pronouns, right? The, the author of this uses personal pronouns. So in, in the sense that he says, I, me. So I think it does matter. If it was written by a disciple of his some years after his death, then the letter begins with a lie, with an untruth. Some scholars get around this by suggesting that it was common practice in this day to write letters in the name of someone else so that you could use their authority and what you were doing, it was accepted, it was okay, because people understood that you could do this and kind of write in their stead, write in their vein of what they think. So because the disciple, right, if we say it was a disciple of Paul, because a disciple of Paul is writing this, uh, then he's just writing and, and furthering the Pauline theology. And so it's okay to do that. As for me, I joined the church from ages past who consider this letter written by Paul. It wasn't doubted in the early church. Uh, we have no uh, contrary manuscript evidence that says there was another name here. And the church fathers didn't doubt that Paul wrote this. So some of these problems that we have can also uh, reasonably be answered. So some of these issues can reasonably be answered. And we don't have to conclude that Paul, excuse me, that Paul didn't write this. So I stand with the church and say, Paul wrote this. Uh, and I would, I, I would say, you need to as well. Uh, I think we have good reason to do that.
But who is this Paul? So who is writing here? Paul, we see he says he writes an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, so he's an apostle of Christ. He's an apostle. And this word apostle means one who is sent. We could literally understand that. Uh, apostle that we have in English, that word comes from the Greek. It's transliterated. So it means we in the Greek, we would see apostle. But if we were to translate it, it would mean one who is sent. So, for instance, I could say, uh, go to Walmart and get me a gallon of milk. And you could say, I'm an apostle of Dale. Which, by the way, isn't that illustrious? <laughs> right? but, but certainly. That, so just to give you an understanding of how we could use that word in a, in a natural way. But we also know that there's a specific usage of this word in the New Testament, right? When we talk about the apostles... We are talking about uh, people who are sent, but we're also talking about an office, right? An office of the church. Uh, consider, for instance, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Paul writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So just briefly there, right? Paul indicates that an apostle is is something unique in the church more than just being one who is sent. The apostles are the 12 disciples, less Judas, adding Matthias, and then later on adding Paul, right? They have a specific function within the church in establishing the church upon the words of Jesus. They have special authority that no other Christian, no other pastor has. They have, they are not perfect, they are not sinless, but they are unique in the history of the church. They bore witness to the words and works of Jesus. Uh, for instance, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 1 and 3. Uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. He writes, that which was from the beginning, and listen to this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, though life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Did you hear what the Apostle John wrote? He, he said, seen it, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've touched it. It was made manifest to us. We proclaimed it. We preached it. This is what the apostles did. And Paul adds that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, right? He is one sent of Christ Jesus, appointed by Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And we have to understand there's a distinction here, right? If we go back to Acts chapter 1, for instance, we know that the apostles were those who were alongside Jesus for his ministry when they're trying to replace Judas, right? They, they give some qualifications. They were alongside Jesus during his ministry. They've, they've seen him, and they've seen him resurrected. And so there were very few who fit that category. And as they chose lots, right, as they cast lots, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, as apostle. Paul was not there during the time of Jesus' ministry as the other apostles were. So we have to ask the question, how can Paul be an apostle? By the will of God. For instance, he writes in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 10, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right, so Paul says, like one untimely born. If you remember the situation, the circumstance, right? Paul is traveling to Damascus, Damascus in order to persecute Christians. He hates them. He wants them dead or in jail. Preferably in jail and then dead. And 
as he is going along the Damascus road, what happens? A, a, a light shines around about him and a voice from heaven speaks, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Or it, or it really says Saul, Saul, right? Because remember, Saul is Paul, but I'm just using his Greek name, Paul. So Jesus visits him. Uh, the grace of God worked in him, though he had been an insolent opponent. And when Paul reaches Damascus, he's blinded. He was blinded by the, the light of the glory of Christ on that Damascus road. And he was blinded in Ananias, so faithful brothers there. And this is not the Ananias of Sapphira in Ananias. right? He's dead. This is a different Ananias. And Ananias is there. He's told by Christ to go and to lay hands on Paul that the scales may fall from his eyes and he may see again. And Ananias is like, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul's a persecutor of Christians. He'll kill me if I go and see him. And Christ responds, and I want to read this portion from Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So when Paul writes here in Ephesians, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm in this position. I'm in this office. I have this authority, not because of me. Right. And this is this is important. He does not have authority to speak into the lives of Christians because he knew a lot. Because he had gone to seminary. Because uh, he was very charismatic. Uh, actually, we, we, we might think from the scriptures he was uncharismatic. So where did his authority come from? God. God. God gave him authority to speak into the lives of the church. It's because God has moved him to write that he writes. It is because God protected his word from generations past that we now pick up this book and read it. So let's bear this in mind. This is God's word, not Paul's word, ultimately. The authority that is in it is God's authority, not Paul's authority. So we see who wrote this letter, but who was it written to? We continue in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And we come to the very uh, second big question of our text. Uh, you might have in your, um, in your translation, in your Bible, uh, a footnote or some kind of indication that in Ephesus may not be original. There are some very old manuscripts that omit the phrase in Ephesus. So there is question in the text, was this letter written to the Ephesians or not? Uh, it's perhaps unlikely that a scribe copying this out would omit in Ephesus. So when we talk about textual criticism, we talk about some kind of logical steps to understand what might the original text have been. And it is unlikely for, for a scribe to leave out a phrase in Ephesus. Uh, further, there is some indications in the early church that perhaps the original addressee of this letter could have been the Laodiceans. For instance, we have in Colossians 4.16... Colossians 4.16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So some scholars suggest that the original addressee, the original persons who this letter was written to, was could have been the Laodicean church. Uh, or, or there's some, maybe it was written to two different churches, 
because if you just take out the phrase, and I'm going to briefly say this, but if you take out the phrase in Ephesus, uh, the, the, the Greek doesn't make sense. It's like it's missing something. And so some suggest maybe it was just to in Laodicea or maybe in Heropolis and in Laodicea. So, so to say something like to the saints who are in Laodicea and, are, and to the faithful in Laodicea or in Heropolis, right? Either way. Anyways, uh, we don't otherwise uh, have evidence of a letter to Laodicea. So some suggest maybe it's that. It could be. And it is suggested by scholars that this letter could be a circular letter. And the idea was that Paul kind of left a blank in the spot where it'd say to whom it's to go to. And as they received the letter, they would know to read themselves into it. So the point was is that this letter, just like we read in Colossians, right? After you've read the letter to you, Colossians, read the letter that came to the Laodiceans. And so perhaps the idea is that this letter was sent and it uh, perhaps was sent first to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, it would have been circulated out to the other churches in the region. And so the reason we have a, a mission is because originally there wasn't a mission and everyone would have understand this letter's to this church, right? So it wasn't a specific letter upon a specific occasion. It was a general letter meant to pass from church to church which, by the way, could explain why it seems so general. Maybe Paul wasn't addressing the Ephesians particularly, but generally. And he wanted the letter to the Ephesians to be read widely, so he didn't address particular problems in the Ephesian church. Uh, that's some speculation about why uh, in Ephesus might have been missing. However, again, it's worth to note that the early church fathers identified a Pauline letter to the Ephesians. So again, from the very old, early church, it was an Ephesian letter, uh, a letter to the Ephesians. And how does Paul address this letter, right? Who, who does he address it to? He addresses it to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, right? He, he uses this word, saints. Now, this word in Greek is the word for holy. And so we might read here, instead of saints, because that's a, maybe a trigger word for us, we might read to the holy ones who are in Ephesus. And this is significant, isn't it? Because, again, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine or dogma that says saints are special Christians who are above everyone else and they really excel and they have miracles attested to them and then they're unique and special in the church, what Paul says is, saints are the church. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. You are a holy one. Paul identifies you, brothers and sisters, as a holy one. And we shouldn't overlook this identification. You have been changed if you are in Christ. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses. You were once stained and unholy, but now you've been made alive together with him. As you have confessed your sins, God has cleansed you from all your unrighteousness. You who were once alienated in hostile mind, doing evil deeds, Christ Jesus has now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Mark this well. If you have been saved you have been changed. The love of God changes you. And it changes how you now live. So who did Paul write this to? He wrote this to the church. And we think the church in Ephesus. Perhaps it went to other churches as well. We, we would expect that to be the case. Here's the reality. This letter has come to us from Paul. And we read it now to that end. So he wrote it to the, the, the saints, the holy ones in Ephesus, the, the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And what's his purpose in this? And we'll look at that in verse 2. His purpose, he writes, he says, he opens, he opens with a traditional greeting in one sense. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to the church to encourage and instruct them. He wants them to know the grace and peace of God. 
The traditional Greek greeting would be something like grace to you, or blessings to you, or favor to you. And he joins, Paul joins in the traditional Jewish greeting of shalom to you, or peace to you. And so Paul combines these together, and what does he say? He says, may the, the unmerited, the unearned favor of God and the peace, relational peace from God, God the Father, and also the Lord Jesus Christ be to you, be upon you. May you know it, may you experience it, may you feel it. Right? And, and notice here, he doesn't say his peace. May my grace and peace be upon you. But God the Father and God the Son. And so now what I want us to do is I want to read through the entirety of this letter. Again, I want to receive it in a similar manner. I want us to receive it in a similar manner that the church in Ephesus would have received it. And as I read, I want you to read along with me. It's not too long. It'll take about 15 minutes. And it's an important 15 minutes. I want you to see what God's grace means for you if you are in Christ. I want you to see and understand what it is that God has done. Because that's the kind of things we see in this letter. And what that means. What it, what are, what is it that comes from that? What flows from that reality? Um, so as I read along, if something catches your eye, feel free to meditate on it for a moment and then catch back up with me. That's an okay thing to do. You're reading the Word of God. And God has something to speak to us this morning. Uh, children, young people, listen in too because there's stuff in here for you. Watch for it. Listen for it. So let us read the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, starting in verse 1. And this is God's word. The authority is God's. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, or what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be my revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, is, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Just take a moment. I'll give you a moment to reflect there on these words of God. And as we close our time together in God's word, some takeaways. Paul was changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was indelibly changed, right? He, he couldn't undo the change that was done to him. He was called of God and he was made into a saint, a holy one. And the people that he is writing to, they too have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been called of God and they were made saints, holy ones. And what about you, brothers and sisters in Christ? Never forget that God has changed you, assuming you are in Christ Jesus. Your salvation changes what you think about, what you say, and how you live your life. Does your life reflect the grace and peace of God? Does it exude holiness? If you claim Christ as your Savior, it should. It must. And understand what I'm talking about there is not you earning your salvation. I'm talking about if you have been saved, you have been changed, and that change has to show itself in your life. There must needs be fruit of your salvation. 
I know that there are some listening now that do not know the grace and peace of God. And you're not a saint. That's not your identity. You are not faithful in Christ Jesus. And your life is marked by death, sin, and unfaithfulness. But there is one who has come, Christ Jesus, in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to heaven changes everything. And it can change you. And if you should continue on the path that you are going, you will one day stand before God on the day of judgment and be cast forever from his good presence. You will never know his grace or peace. You will only know the fierceness of his holy wrath. But Jesus came and died in the place of sinners, suffered the wrath of God, the judgment of God for sins not his own in order to give his people life, even eternal life. So confess your sins to God this day. Repent of them. Turn from them. Turn to Christ Jesus. Confess him as your Lord. Be changed by God forever. Uh, take part. Take hold of the immeasurable riches of his grace towards you in Christ Jesus. Believe this good news. And then live differently. Talk differently. Think differently. Follow Christ in all his ways. Let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, Father God, we come before you in recognition and confession of the truth of you and your word. Father, we know that without your work in Christ in us, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We follow the prince of the power of this age, which shall only lead to our destruction and death as it shall for him. But Father, you have made a way for us. You have given a gift to your people that we might be forgiven our sins that we might be able to walk in newness of life. And Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us to understand these things, to understand your love towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, change us. Father, continue to change us until we stand before you in the glories of heaven and have full knowledge in that moment what is truly the extent of your immeasurable riches of grace towards us. But Father God, may we joyously sing. May we rejoice ever in your grace towards us. So we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.